1: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll talk about the crime of misgendering.
2: It is a psychological problem, but at its foundation, it's a spiritual problem.
1: And the alarming number of gender transitions among minors.
3: Forty-eight thousand patients were told who underwent surgeries from 2016 to 2020. Just let that number settle in for a moment. Plus, we'll
1: look at the real legacy of feminism. That's what feminism was supposed to do: was really empower us, but it's really erase us. And we'll consider a way forward in understanding what it means to be a woman. The important thing is just to
4: recognize the beauty that women have and the kind of wonder that we can elicit when we're actually made to behave in the way that God created us for.
1: I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland. And now I'm also live in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch that stream at thewordseattle.com or my home station here in Portland at kpdq.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the criminal offense of misgendering. Of course, the word misgender refers to the inadvertent or deliberate failure to address an individual by their preferred pronoun, when that preference is at odds with their biological sex. Alex McFarlane has been looking at the effort to criminalize this offense. The host of Exploring the Word was a guest on my program. This is such a peculiar phenomenon that's sweeping the country, and I'm not even sure beyond, uh, but I think it's left a lot of people wringing their hands. They may have a clear understanding of the difference between one's chosen gender and one's biological sex, but how to navigate where language is being so dramatically shifted uh, can be somewhat confusing. Your thoughts on this phenomenon and uh, the criminalization of getting it wrong from that perspective?
2: Well, thank you so much uh, for having me on and thank you for the courage in addressing such a serious issue because the rise of, of transgenderism and the rise of people with gender dysphoria and now the politicizing of this and as, you know, the, the ever lengthening acronym of LGB and then LGBT and LGBTQ trans and then 2F. LGBT I mean it goes on and on and on and what's troubling I mean as a christian I'm concerned but really as a constitutionalist citizen I'm very concerned that the alphabet people the 2SLGBTQ trans plus plus ad infinitum they're gaining political clout and their gender dysphoria gender confusion same-sex ideation, pan-sex ideation, all of, you know, all of the confusions. It it is a psychological problem. It's becoming a political problem, but at its foundation, it's a spiritual problem. And what's so troubling, I mean, there are many things, but the, the idea that someone might accidentally or intentionally Refer to someone by a gender pronoun that is not a person's chosen, you know, identification. The idea that that would be a crime and that the idea that citizens, educators, clergy, physicians be legally compelled to speak things that rational adults know aren't true, that's not – Judeo-Christian constitutional republic. That's a fascist totalitarian regime. And and leaders have to have the courage to say, no, that, that cannot be allowed in America.
1: And that may ultimately be costly because there are cases both here and abroad where individuals who simply told the truth Um, have uh, have lost something they've lost a political career they've lost a job they've uh, been expelled expelled from a uh, middle school girls soccer team all kinds of of um, penalties are being applied to those who who will not conform and again we're we're not talking about mistreating individuals we're talking about language that uh, accurately describes who and what someone is when it's appropriate to make a reference
2: yeah and a huge part of the confusion, which now really jeopardizes the stability of our constitutional republic. A big contributor has been the breakdown of the family. And then on a parallel track, while you know the majority of kids born do not grow up in the same home as their biological mother and father, running parallel with our abandonment of the family has been our incremental abandonment of moral boundaries. Now, there's a reason for that, Georgine. I mean, we say that abortion is not wrong and the unborn is not a human and that homosexuality is now commensurate with heterosexual monogamy. Um, The reason we've done these semantical gymnastics to try to legitimize deviancy is because humans cannot live forever in a state of cognitive dissonance. I mean, when we're affirming or doing things that we know aren't factual or aren't good and true, we know what's wrong and we will either change our beliefs or change our behaviors because the human consciousness can't go on forever in a state of inner turmoil. But here's the thing, lying to ourselves does not change reality. And so I believe the answer is that we have to have a return to morals, a return to the family, and I'll just say it, a return to God.
1: We're right to be concerned with what we're witnessing in our nation today. We ought to be prayerful as well. Albert Moeller took a look at some of the latest data, fresh from the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, on his briefing podcast. We've been
3: experiencing such a transformation in ethics and, indeed, a transformation of worldview in a rapidly secularizing and liberalizing Western civilization. It's hard to keep up, and it's also hard to know just how evenly this civilization is moving in a more secular and more leftward direction. But over time, it has been clear that it is the gender and sexuality issues that are the clearest indicator and perhaps also the most powerful engines of that revolution in a more secular and more progressivist or more liberal direction. But one of the things we've had to consider as Christians is whether or not there are any limits to just how far that revolution can go. There's some very big developments. We're going to start in the United States, where the New York Times is reporting this major research on the rapid rise of the number of so-called gender-affirming surgeries. They used to be called sex reassignment surgeries. Before that, they were called transsexual surgeries, even before the word transgender entered the ordinary parlance of Americans. But you might expect that there would be a rather significant increase And we're told that between 2016 and 2019, quote, gender-affirming surgeries intended to align patients' physical appearance with their gender identity nearly tripled in the United States. Here's the next sentence. Quote, the number of procedures rose from about 4,550 in 2016 to 13,000 in 2019 and then dipped slightly in 2020. And that's at least partly, of course, because of COVID. So let's just look at the numbers between 2016-2019, a rise of 4,550 to 13,000. Now, this raises a huge question, and this is very sensitive, but this is exactly where we need as Christians to probe the question, does this mean that there was a radical increase in the number of persons who understood themselves to be, say, transgender? an increase when it comes to the surgeries of 4550 in 2016 to 13,000 just 3 years later in 2019. I think we all recognize that it is extremely unlikely that this was merely some kind of supposed self-discovery. What we are clearly seeing here is that there is at least something to the idea of a social contagion going on here. This becomes something that seems to take hold in society, but as we're going to see, it's not evenly distributed. When we talk about this uneven distribution, let's consider the 48,000 patients we're told who underwent surgeries from 2016 to 2020. Just let that number settle in for a moment. 48,000 we are told underwent some kind of procedure along these lines from 2016 to 2020. It becomes clear that what is declared to be a transition from female to male is far more common than going in the other direction. That's very consistent, by the way, with reports coming about adolescents who are identifying along these lines. And when we say social contagion, we're pointing out that this is a phenomenon that at least in some degree is showing up in concentrations of populations. For example, even in individual high schools, this is something that at least is correlated. Now, in terms of scientific language, that means There seems to be where this shows up, that also shows up. There is an insistence among scientists that that does not mean causation. But nonetheless, I think we can all understand there's something going on here when a pattern falls out this way. The other big thing to watch here is what we're seeing in terms of age. I'm going to read it exactly as this report states it. Quote, just over half of all patients were ages 19 to 30. About 22% were ages 31 to 40. And almost 8% were ages 12 to 16, end quote. Now, wait just a moment. Wait just a moment. We've been told over and over and over and over again that these surgeries aren't performed on minors. And yet, this is a full 8%. Now, remember, that's 8% of 48,000. That is a massive number. And this is exactly how this game is being played in our society. We have seen it in local hospitals and medical centers where there has been a denial that such surgeries are done. And then when it turns out the federal reports are released and the numbers are known, the story changes from we don't do this to we almost never do this. Now, again, I'm not going to go into any detail here, but I am going to edit one sentence here where the report tells us that the number of, I'm going to say, the most serious of these surgeries Quote, increased with age, which researchers attributed to the, quote, higher complexity and, no kidding, this is their term, definitive nature of the procedure, end quote. Yep, I think we can agree that the word definitive does apply there. But remember when we're told that some of these surgeries, particularly on minors, just don't happen, except when obviously they do happen? Now just consider this particular little caveat put into the report, quote, the data accounted only for surgeries in inpatient and ambulatory settings and did not include cases in which surgeons omitted certain gender-related diagnosis codes, end quote. Well, if you're paying attention, alarm bells should be going off because that tells us that some doctors are presumably intentionally not stating that this is related to gender in such a way as to make these statistics less discernible. And even the New York Times said, quote, as a result, the study's findings are, quote, almost certainly under captures of the real figures. And that was attributed to one particular doctor who's involved in the report. And that would be Dr. Jason D. Wright, the chief of gynecologic oncology at Columbia University's Vangelos College of Physicians and Surgeons. We're told that he led the research.
1: Coming up, have women been sold a bill of goods?
4: That's what feminism was supposed to do, was really empower us. But it's really
1: erased us. When the Christian Outlook returns, in a moment.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
1: Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The history and aspiration of feminism was supposed to be about the rights and advancement of women. I should emphasize, supposed to. I am in many respects a champion and an advocate for women. But sadly, in many respects, feminism hasn't served women well. Carrie Gress is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. She joined me this week on my program. One of the questions that seems to puzzle those in authority is the question of what is a woman Uh, in my lifetime? I never assumed that that would be considered a difficult question. (laughs) There are a lot of things to me that are difficult to answer. That doesn't seem one of them. Why are people so afraid to say what is a woman and what does that tell us about the end game of feminism?
4: sure well i think that we have to look back at the 70s and see what a, a lot of the rhetoric was and there was really an effort at that point to just erase gender altogether and to get people to sort of reimagine themselves reinvent themselves you know in any direction in which they wanted to go and so that's really what we're seeing culminate in the trans movement is that people have this capacity to reinvent themselves any way that they like to and so this inability to define womanhood really goes back to that idea and it goes right along the political lines of of trying not to offend trans people or anybody who feels like they, you know, weren't born in the right body or, you know, whatever. But that seems to be really what's motivated is all these years of trying to erase gender altogether and make women more like men, men more like women. And so that's really culminated in, in what we're seeing today. And, of course, this incapacity to even define what woman is comes from that, because we've so masculinized the culture and really haven't said very much that's good about women. For, for a long time, which is sort of ironic, because, of course, that's what feminism was supposed to do, was really empower us. But it's really erased us.
1: One of the things I think that many of us find shocking is that the voices of feminists have not been raised at the erasure of women. Uh, where yeah. are they? And, and do they just feel <laughs> assimilated? What what happened? What's going on?
4: Yeah, no, I think it's, again, part of this whole trajectory of trying to get women To believe that they can be whomever they want. I mean, these started early also with the the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir and um, this idea that that we are—can be unleashed from our human nature. So, part of the goal was for this to happen. So, you see this infighting going on, of course, with women like J.K. Rowling, who is saying, you know, no, this is bad. (laughs) You can't erase women, um, you know, for the sake of men who feel more comfortable wearing a dress and high heels. And there are others who say, well, no, this man is completely entitled to say that he's a woman, despite his biology. Um, So it's what happens with ideologies, because all of it has been really built on a lot of sand, is there's going to be infighting at the end of it when things finally culminate. And that's really what we're living through at the moment.
1: You showcase some pretty shocking testimonies in your book that we really haven't heard much about. Tell us a little bit about what's been said on this subject.
4: Yeah, well, you know, this book was shocking for me to research because I, like Mm -hmm. so many other people, just thought that, you know, feminism maybe was hijacked by the second wave uh, feminism, but the first wave feminism was actually really a great thing. And I thought, you know, I just need to go back and do this research myself and check it out. And if there's some lovely things on women, I can use that. But I I never dreamed I would find what I found, which is that, you know, from the very beginning, uh, feminism was really focused on this idea of Collapsing society, getting rid of hierarchy, getting rid of patriarchy, getting rid of anything that was older in in the world. And then um, so that was one piece that ended up, of course, becoming this notion of smashing the patriarchy. You also have the occult was incredibly involved in the feminist movement. Uh, Most people have no idea that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was very involved in seances and working with mediums. And then the third piece was really free love was another element that was part of it that was, you know, getting rid of monogamy, but also trying to get rid of the the nuclear family. So all three of these pieces really were working together from, you know, the 1800s onwards. I think we, we think of that era as a very puritanical era, but there was a lot of really awful stuff going on. And we can see that the pattern of what started with them came down to us and really just was exacerbated in the second wave with, of course, the addition of Marxism to the movement.
1: The patriarchy has been and continues to be blamed for much of the ills that women have experienced. But in your book, you look at how women are harming women in this effort Mm -hmm. to equalize with men or to become more like them, to defeminize themselves. Talk a bit about Mm -hmm. that.
4: Yeah. Well, I think that's the remarkable thing is just to look at what what are the statistics telling us about women? Are women getting happier and of course we're not really seeing any evidence of that. In fact, it's going the opposite direction and that's those are the details that are not being highlighted. But what's happened is of course we're told things like women can have it all, that women are better than men, the movement itself actually really focused and and put on a pedestal the nature of lesbian relationships, but at the same time felt all this resentment against men, which, of course, now we're seeing a lot of the fallout from that of um, men resenting women. And, and um, it really became sort of this power struggle. So what's been created, of course, is this you know massive war between the sexes. Um, women seem to be holding all the cards because men are afraid to speak up and say very much about this. And that's been one of the refreshing aspects of this book that I, I didn't really expect was to see how many men really like this book and are finding, you know, hope and being able to talk about it in a way that, that is constructive and moving forward instead of feeling like they just don't know how to act at all in light of, of the feminist movement. So again, what the end game has been is to create this destruction and this resentment between the sexes and again, furthering that destruction of the nuclear family.
6: Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address, and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit and also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit. And also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000.
1: I appreciate that you don't just trace the impact that feminism has had, how it began and how we got here, but you also have a section of the book on the way home and restoration. How do we get from where we are today that appears to be Uh, held by the majority to where we need to be when we embrace womanhood again and appreciate who we are physically, biologically, and in every other way? Yeah, well, I think that's the
4: most important question. I mean, the biggest thing is really for women to realize just how much we've been brainwashed. And indoctrinated into thinking in ways that are actually work against us. So that, that's probably the first place to start. But I think the, the important thing is just to recognize the beauty uh, that women have and the kind of wonder that we can elicit when we're actually made to behave in the way that God created us for. We we currently have sort of two slots that we can fall into. One is over-sexualized and the other one is really narcissistic. And neither one of those, of course, is, is going to lead to any kind of happiness. We know our, our ultimate happiness comes when we're serving others, and of course these things have been You know, this desire to serve others has been denigrated as, um, you know, codependency or, you know, whatnot. And, of course, obviously codependency can happen, but that's largely what most women are not doing. Um, And, you know, in writing this book, it was fun to actually look back and see sort of obviously both in Scripture but also in ancient mythology, how did people understand women? And um, women were really understood, you know, there's a lot of metaphors for them, things like rivers and the ocean and, you know, ships. This is why a ship is always called a she— Uh, You can see it in the Romance languages with their um, use of different masculine and feminine articles. So it was really interesting to start seeing, you know, what are these patterns? And and one of them is this capacity to carry things, of course. But another one is even like the idea of an oven. You know, you put something into an oven and it comes out hopefully much better than when you put it in once Mm -hmm. it's cooked. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things that women do is just our capacity to improve things. That's sort of what we're tasked with through our love and care and nurturing and kind of being dialed into the needs of those around us, whether it's our home or the workplace or um, in schools and whatnot. So I, I think it's just really a matter of getting back into touch with what it means to be a woman, finding kind of this new grammar for talking about women, because one of the things that feminism has done is it's not only defined its position, but it's also defined what it thinks is the opposite position, which is those of us that disagree with it. And it's really made us look like we're, you know, doormats or or handmaids, like in the handmaid Tale women that they tout out, you know, in their red bonnets and robes. So. It's a matter of trying to fight two misunderstandings of of womanhood and come up with something that really captures who we are in an authentic and beautiful
1: way. Coming up, Alistair Begg on The Christian Manifesto.
7: Jesus is pointing out to us that this is an impossibility apart from the work of grace within our lives.
1: When The Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
5: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
1: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. And then Jesus came down with them and stood on the level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And he raised his eyes toward his disciples and began saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Thus begins what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Christ's words are reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Alistair Begg, in his latest book, calls this the Christian Manifesto. Bob Lapine talked with Alistair about these most challenging words of Jesus on truth for life.
0: You mentioned both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. There's overlap between what we see in Matthew's gospel and what's in Luke's gospel. This is really the heart of what Jesus is telling his disciples that life is supposed
7: to be all about, right? Yes, I think it's pretty clear that there are two separate occasions for sure, uh, but that the overlap between the material— is exactly what we'd expect when two of Jesus' followers were giving to their readers in their gospel the sort of highlights of the overarching teaching of the king. And as we think about this, I, I think we're supposed to read the Sermon on the Plain and apply it in our day, don't you think? Oh, I think for sure we can all be grateful for the fact that Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually you know, gave to us uh, the Beatitudes, and helped us uh, navigate our way through that. And, of course, uh, the work that John Stott did in the countercultural essence of Christian living, I found very helpful as a young man. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's vitally important. I think the other side, of course, is that the real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism. Uh, pull up your socks and try and be a decent person if you'll do this then maybe jesus will let you into his kingdom as opposed to what is actually being conveyed by jesus here are the evidences here are the marks of kingdom living here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who i am and what i've done that the outflow is from there working from into out and I think it's easy for any of
0: us to read Luke chapter 6 and go, wait a second, I can't do this. Love my enemies and think differently. This is unnatural and and feels impossible. And I think that's part of the point, isn't it, that Jesus is trying to say, you can't do this.
7: Well, yes, I, I think part of the problem is that the sort of moral framework of Christianity with a big C is such that people do read this and say, oh, yes, I definitely can do this. (laughs) And uh, they might not make a very good job of it, but they're trying their best to be these people. And I think that when we read the material carefully, we realize exactly what you're saying, that Jesus is pointing out to us that this is an impossibility apart from the work of grace within our lives. Mm
0: -hmm. And we also need to keep in mind that this is not what we do to enter into the kingdom, this is what we do because we are citizens of the kingdom.
7: Yes, I must be honest, Bob. I, you know, I scan read this book in preparation for this conversation, and I was immediately thinking of the passage where Paul says, "I don't box in the air, you know. I don't, I don't shadow box, but I, I beat my body." And to read this book is to give yourself a pretty good punch on the nose because immediately we want to jump to the conclusion that, oh yes, it's very clear that these are the evidences of real kingdom living and yet we're confronted by the fact that you know if we look on the last week, we haven't just been exemplary um, people in relationship to these things and so the wonderful thing about it is that it casts us back again and again on the Lord but not to use that as an excuse for the potential disobedience of our own hearts. I think about principles in the Sermon
0: on the Plain, like the teaching of Jesus that we are to love our enemy. And I think of today, modern social media. I wonder how many Christians are taking a command to love your enemy. And as they write out their their latest tweet or post their latest post on Facebook, are thinking, well, I need to be loving my enemy. It, It
7: seems... We've lost sight of some of these commands of Jesus, yeah, and they're so fundamental that's the striking thing. I mean this is not like a postgraduate course this is the this is christianity one o one i mean this is this is foundational, you know the trouble is that we read these parables, I read these parables, and you know I want to be the younger brother that comes back, you know on my knees, and I look at it, and I say, "I, I horribly think I might be the elder brother here." Um, I I want to be the guy who beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I see myself more forcibly in these guys who said, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And I do this and I do that. And therefore, I've been able to scale myself. That's the challenge of it. That's the challenge that Jesus was laying down, of course. Coming up. The temptation is to find our security in something other than God himself. We continue
1: with the Christian Manifesto and Alistair Begg. Stay with us.
7: As the Pepperdine
5: Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Forgiving,
7: forgiven, Child from all Say to
1: every you are for-
6: Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address, and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit. And also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000.
1: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. In Luke 6, Christ challenges us. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. As you probably know, forgiveness can be hard. But Christ offers a forgiveness beyond measure to all who come to him. And he calls us to extend forgiveness generously. Let's pick up with Bob Lapine's conversation with Alistair Begg on Truth for Life. As they discuss the Christian manifesto, forgiveness
0: is one of the key themes in the Sermon on the Plain. And I, you and I both, as we talk to people in pastoral ministry, find a lot of people struggling with this issue of forgiveness. In, in part, I think because they don't rightly understand what it means to forgive someone. Forgiveness, though, is is a command. It's not an option for a Christian, is it? Right.
7: The way in which it is framed, of course, is that our our merciful response to people, reaction to people, is on account of the the groundswell reality of realizing how merciful God has been to us. Yeah. And, you know, when we say the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive uh, forgiving our debtors, f- uh, as, as forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors so hard to say that because you've got the trespasses or debtors or whatever. And anyway, <laughs> uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And, you know, it's only as I realize the immensity of God's forgiveness towards me that I realize that, that I don't really have an option here um, in terms of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that—to for, forgive a person doesn't mean that we condone what they've done or that we are just simply saying it doesn't matter no we don't condone it and it does matter if it didn't matter there's no if it wasn't wrong there would be no need for forgiveness but to forgive in that way is a supernatural thing in the same way that, that at the other end of the the other side of the coin to love in the way that jesus calls us to love is also a superf- supernatural reality As you're sitting with someone who is struggling with forgiveness,
0: they've been profoundly hurt or or, uh, scarred by someone, and they say, I just can't forgive this person. What's your pastoral counsel to them in that moment?
7: Well, funnily enough, I was with somebody just last week. They came through our building. They were traveling, and in casual conversation— um we were just bantering things around and then eventually the gentleman said to me would it be okay if you and I just talked for a moment and as we talked he he told me that uh, he, he was he's been harboring all of his life a sense of anger towards one of his parents hmm. he had reached a point he said where he has now been able to look on that parent with a sense of compassion but he said and then he burst into tears, this is a man in his 60s. He said, but I just can't say, I forgive you. Can you help me to do that? And so I said, well, I'll try. But that is the reality of it. And and it, it's not immediately helpful, I think, to say to somebody, well, I, I'm not sure can't is right. I think perhaps won't is right, uh, because it is by an act of the will. Uh, sometimes our hearts need to catch up with our heads Um, Need to catch up with our words. And uh, so I encouraged him and we prayed together. And uh, he said, This has been a a burden uh, shared and a burden halved. Let me ask you about Jesus' teaching about money and possessions,
0: which is a part of what's in the Sermon on the Plain, which again seems countercultural to the consumerism and the materialism that is so prevalent in our own culture.
7: Yeah, it is such a challenge. I mean, that's that's what I say when I read through this again. You know, I don't I don't know about you, Bob, but I don't re-listen to my own sermons. <laughs> I mean, Spurgeon said, "Keep your old sermons to weep over," and I can understand that. But as I as I read this material again, I, I was struck by by the immensity of the challenge that the things that we lay store by um, are not the things that Jesus lays store by, and we have, if you like, been tempted—at least in Western civilization—to baptize into orthodoxy a sense of well-being, a sense of uh, position, and uh, and uh, a sense of being relatively settled. But as I as I say in the book, you know, in terms of being rich, um, you know most of us would fit in the scheme of the entire world in the 1% of those in the entire world. Therefore, it's not as if the I can sidestep it and say, well, I know a few people who are rich, they need to hear this. No, I, I need to hear this as well, because the, the temptation is to find our security in something other than God himself. And Jesus is saying there's no lasting joy that is found in that. And of course, we know that. But then it's so easy to slip back into that, and to be um, confronted by the challenge of, of of the manifesto of the King. He says, "No, you've got it upside down. If you go there, my world turns it upside down," and that's the challenge. Is Is there anything that helps
0: you um, rethink? Your relationship with money and possessions. As you read the words of Jesus, how do you get free from the bondage that can come from materialism?
7: Well, I think first of all, just being alerted to it is one thing, and not trying to sidestep the warning bell, saying, "Yeah, well, that's very good for someone, but it doesn't matter to me." For first of all, being prepared to allow the thing to scan our own hearts, and then. I think generosity with what we have is a tremendous help to recognizing that what we have was entrusted to us on loan and it's not ours to keep in any case. And, you know, I say that as a Scot, you know, we're known along (laughs) with the Dutch and a few others for a sense of frugality and for, you know, holding everything to ourselves. It's a real journey for me to discover that, Generosity with the provision that God has made is a is a wonderfully um, satisfying reality. And also, it, it, it when you do that, when you when you disburse what you have, then you have less left, and therefore you are left to trust God, I suppose, more hmm. because you're saying, "I don't need this for my security. I need you as my security." Coming up. He died in order that we might learn to die to ourselves as well. A few more minutes with Alistair Bay, when the Christian
1: Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us.
7: I'm holding on your robe, got me ten feet off the ground.
1: Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata with Johnny and Friends. Did you know that more than 80 million Americans daily depend on AM radio for conversations, news, weather reports, and emergency information? Well, a new bill in Congress would ensure AM radio remains in cars. Because when cell and Internet services are down, this free service could be your only access to vital communication. Visit DependOnAM.com to learn how to make your voice heard.
6: Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address, and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit. And also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit and also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late. Call 800 900 8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800 900 8000.
1: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Alistair Begg titled his latest book, The Christian Manifesto, so that we might capture the challenge from our Lord. We are called to live differently. We're called to live differently because the kingdom we are a part of is different. It is not of this world. And it's a difference we'll see most clearly in eternity. Let's pick up with Alistair Begg and Bob Lapine from Truth For Life.
7: You know, one day this thing will be there in glorious technicolor. That's the picture in Revelation, that there will be this gathering of the people. But in the meantime, somehow or another, local churches have got to figure out a way to open up their hearts and open up their doors, to let people come in and understand that in our vulnerabilities and in our brokenness, we are subjects of a king. He is a merciful king. He tells the truth. He doesn't dodge the issues. And he died in order that we might learn to die to ourselves as well. You have in recent months been taking the Parkside congregation
0: through Romans chapter 1, and Psalm 139, and Jude, which all point to how out of sync our culture is with God's word, God's expectations. It feels like the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 is pointing us back inward and saying it's not just culture that is out of sync with God's demands, but our own lives are out of sync, and that's again why we need the gospel for forgiveness and for transformation.
7: One of the salvations for me in in trying to tackle Jude is the fact that he doesn't name anybody. he doesn't call anybody out. I mean he gives us an identical picture of the characteristics of people that will cause trouble and chaos if they're allowed to embed themselves, despite his very forceful approach it's if you' like a, a an iron fist in a kid glove, and there is something in that I think that uh, we need to be prepared to identify what he's calling us to see, while at the same time recognizing that every finger that points out has a number that point back towards us. Mm-hmm. And the Sermon on the Plain, uh, you know we, all know, we all know the thing about the plank and the twig, you know, mm-hmm. but, but we're horrible at finding twigs in people's eyes. And there's a sort of humorous treatment of that in the book where... You know, we have this idea that we have a a huge uh, beam that is projecting from our foreheads and we're trying to talk to somebody about something that they have in their eye and they say, you know, could you back up a little bit, please? And I say, well, why do I need to back up? I we say, well, you got that huge thing sticking out of your head. Oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. They say, yeah, you do. And and yet we're masters at that and churches are horrible for that. Yeah. You know, self-righteousness, uh, self-pity, self self and that's why we need to bow down before the king that's why he gives us the sermon
1: thank you for joining us for the christian outlook if you enjoyed the program take a moment to sign up for our podcast at christianoutlook.com. our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the pepperdine graduate school of public policy for executive producer russell shubin and producers david pushan mike cook and james blend i'm georgine rice Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.
5: You've spoken and we've heard you loud and clear. We're proud to announce our brand new ACLJ Life and Liberty Drive. Our legal teams will be focusing on the issues that you've told us matter the most to you, life and religious liberty. We're redoubling our efforts to beat back the radical left's attacks on your constitutional religious freedoms and to defend the sanctity of human life. This is your moment to get in the fight. Every tax-deductible gift will be doubled. Go to ACLJ.org right now and join us in the fight.